Bill definitely have have to have a cameo on one of these. Oh, he's coming right now. Like, look. <laughs> hi, Theodore. Oh, he's naked. Oh, great. Oh, <laughs> coming to you from the heart of Thomas Jefferson's Academical Village. This is Academical, the official podcast of the Virginia Policy Review. The Virginia Policy Review is an independent organization staffed by students at the Frank Batten School of Leadership and Public Policy at the University of Virginia, with a mission to publish work that will impact the wider policy debate. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Academical. Welcome in. My name is Sean Bolowski. I'm a second-year MPP student at Batten, and I don't know about you all, but last week was hard. It was the first full week for us in virtual instruction again, and it has not gotten any easier since the spring semester. But one thing that has been, the last last week especially for me in particular, is that my wife, and really I emphasize my wife is the one who um, is leading the charge here, my wife and I started homeschooling our children. And I have two five-year-olds, I have a twin five-year-olds and a two-year-old, and we have decided that we're going to, we're not going to send them to preschool this year, we're not sending them to pre-K, and we are going to, to homeschool them. And the toll that that takes is immense. And again, my wife is the one leading the charge on this. I try to pitch in where I can. She is a trained teacher. That is her domain. Our kids are in better hands with her in charge. But that was hard. And I think, unfortunately, last week was just a preview, I think, of of what this year is going to be like for a lot of people. It is going to be gritting your teeth, at times painful, at times rewarding, at times you're feeling grateful, at times you feel like the world is just crumbling around you. And that's something that I think we all really need to keep in mind as we work through this, because it felt like last week that that um, the gritting your teeth part was a little bit more on display. And, you know, we need to keep that in mind, I think, as we interact with others. Now, one thing that has actually lifted my spirits a bit was was the conversations that I had. And first off, our co-host is Megan Clancy. And Megan is one of my favorite people at Batten. And I cannot tell you how many people I've met in this program that I just think the world of. But if you were to ask me, you know, which of your classmates is going to save the world within the span of, of her, his lifetime, Megan would be very near the top of that list. I, I just think the world of her perspective, I think of the, the, the world of how she communicates with the world. And I'm so excited that, that she is on board. I'm so excited you all get to meet her. And then our conversation is one with the Virginia Secretary of Education, Atif Carney. And Secretary Carney talked to us, was gracious enough to give us an hour uh, at 9 a.m. on the Tuesday, the day that most schools are getting back to it. And so um, it was a very good time to get his thoughts and, and see how he's feeling and where he is as the school year starts. So let's get to it and let's meet Megan. So Megan, I was hoping just to start off, can you explain uh, how you made your way to Batten? 
Sure. Uh, so I always say mine is definitely a non-traditional path. Um, I didn't go to college right out of high school, um, even though I had been in, you know, gifted and talented and honors classes and kind of saw that um, being my path. It just didn't wind up that way for a variety of reasons. Um, I'm also a first-gen college student, and even though my parents uh, really push, you know, education and reading and the importance of that, um, it just didn't happen for me right away. So I found myself working in the field of early childhood education uh, for quite a while. My mother owned an in-home daycare center um, and then built that out into a brick and mortar business. And it was a very big part of my life, obviously. And, and I really loved the field. Um, between high school and going to college, I moved to Richmond, Virginia um, and was working as a lead pre-K teacher and um, which is getting really frustrated with the field for a variety of reasons, which now I realize all of them were policy related, uh, but at the time I didn't really have the language to um, name that. And I was really fortunate um, that at my community college Reynolds, they had just started an honors program there and I really wanted to challenge myself. Um, and so started taking classes in the honors program and my mentor there, uh, Dr. Bourne Richardson was really like, she, I had a lot of conversations with her and she was pretty much like, you don't want to go to law school, you want to get a public policy degree. And being first gen, I didn't even know an MPP existed. Um, and so she told me about UVA and she told me about um, the accelerated master's in public policy and it just kind of fit. I mean, I was coming back to college later in life. Um, I knew I wanted to get a master's or a professional degree. I just didn't really know in what. Um, and at this time, I was thinking about a lot of different areas of interest were like history and politics and statistics and, and obviously still education was on my mind, but I really didn't know what that path would look like. And as soon as I learned about the Batten program, it just kind of all fit together for me. Um, after going, you know, I had considered other schools, um, but after going to like some Batten hours that really hooked me in was like that sense of community the leadership aspect um, and being able to do it on an accelerated path. So even though I'm an accelerated, you know, MPP, I always kind of feel like I have a foot in both the post-grad world and the Excel world because I have professional um, experience to apply. Uh, so yeah, that's how I found that. <laughs> you know, I, I, I told you this and, um, you know, I, I don't want to, um, I don't want to embarrass you or anything, but, but I, you were like, you were like one of the first people I reached out to when I started this podcast or had the idea to, to start in this format. And I, I think you have an unbelievable, you talk about you're open with your first gen, um, you know, as a first gen college student and what that experience is for you. But I think you have an unbelievable ability to like see things for what they are and you kind of cut through it in such an effective way. And, um, you know, I, I'm just kind of curious, you know, where do you think that comes from? And do you think that that kind of, you know, how does that serve as, as you look at your policy interests in, in education? Mm. Yeah, uh, that's not the first time I've heard that. You use kinder, friendlier language <laughs> than is usually put with that. Um, I think that's how I like to be communicated to. Uh, if you know, especially in work environments, if I'm not meeting someone's expectations, I want to be told so that I can correct it. Um, and so I feel like, and through Batten, especially the leadership courses, I've learned that not everybody likes to be communicated to that way. So I've learned how to, 
I say finesse. <laughs> finesse is a kinder word um, to kind of just really be honest because I feel like if we're not putting everything on the table, then we can't make the most informed decisions. And I think that's probably how I see myself, you know, a budding policymaker or analyst is that, you know, I want to hear everything. I want to hear the good, the bad, and the ugly so that I feel like we can make the best decisions. If, if people are bringing up things that are usually unspoken in a room, that's how you can have conversations about unintended consequences um, or just perspectives that you just don't have from your lived experience. I think that's, you know, really, really important. So. Well, so we have, we end up having a conversation or had the opportunity to have a conversation with Virginia Secretary of Education, Atif Carney. And, um, you know, just to, to let folks know, we recorded this on the Tuesday after Labor Day at 9 a.m. And Megan, I, it's, it's interesting as we, you know, we, we dive into so many topics, but I think you probably share this kind of looking back on the conversation. There's a lot of stuff we didn't cover. Uh, I think we, we talked about a lot of things, but um, when you're talking to someone who oversees, you know, as many schools at, at all different levels of education, um, you know, it is a, a very interesting time to get the perspective of the person who's overseeing all of um all of the Virginia public school system. And, um, you know, I, I think it was um, almost, I don't know how you felt coming out of it, but it kind of refreshing to hear his perspective and kind of how he's tackling such a, such a momentous challenge. Yeah, I think for me, you know, thinking about being in a classroom, you know, f about five years ago, maybe a little more than that now. Wow, seems like time has flown when I think about it that way. Um, having the ear um of the commonwealth secretary of education was just such uh like out of body experience i call these uva experiences they're just experiences i wouldn't have gotten any place else um and just recognizing both the privilege and i feel like a huge responsibility that comes for that to, to making sure that i'm asking questions that are not just relevant to me and my experience but um you know to people that you know, won't get, won't get his ear. Um, and I think the fact that it is here on this Tuesday when, you know, uh, it's the first day that undergrads are back at UVA. Um, and I know that there's already people that have concerns about, you know, having um, COVID, you know, contact because of a roommate or going to a class or something like that. So, um, yeah, it was really refreshing to hear how much he centers equity um, and how his personal lived experience really informs and shapes the work that he does as secretary. Yeah, and one thing to note, uh, we mentioned in, in during the, the course of this uh, conversation that Secretary Carney had written something um, about his experience running for office in the in the General Assembly. And we'll actually, he wrote an op-ed back in 2015 for the Washington Post being a Muslim American running for office and, and the response he got actually from his own party, from the Democratic Party. So we'll link to that in the show notes. But without further ado, here's our conversation with Virginia Secretary of Education, Atif Carney. Secretary Carney, you know, um, you're joining us. I want to timestamp this because this is Tuesday at 9 a.m. Uh, right after right after Labor Day, and a lot of a lot of schools are getting getting back to it today. Uh, some of them in person for the for the first time since since March. And I'm I'm just you know I just want to start uh, Secretary Carney with how are you feeling this morning? 
No, I'm, I'm feeling great. Uh, both of my kids started. They're, they're virtual for the first nine, nine weeks. Uh, so I got them situated. They were actually uh, up before me, which is a rare case because <laughs> all summer they're waking up late playing too many video games. But uh, it's, it's, it's interesting because kids are always excited on the first day of school and that hasn't changed. A lot of things have changed uh, with the pandemic, but one thing that has not changed is that folks are still very excited and uh, they were showered up, combed their hair. <laughs> and I'm like, you're on Zoom, but they were ready to go. So. Uh, I, I find that very interesting, and, and that's that's what I love about our uh, young people. They're very responsible when it when it comes uh, push comes to shove. They're they're ready to go. So uh, I want to wish everyone a happy first day. Uh, uh, almost all of the school divisions are open now. There's a few that might be opening up next week, just a, a few students, but pretty much all of our divisions, 132 divisions, are um, ready to go um, uh, uh, as of today, and. Uh, I just want to wish everybody all the best. I know it's a tough time, but well, you know we're going to get through this. Uh, I really believe in our young people. They're very resilient, much more than we are. So uh, they, they, they're going to do well. Yeah, I agree with that last point. Uh, as a former pre-K teacher, I've definitely experienced how resilient children can be um, and adapting to uh, such extraordinary changes that they've been going through since the spring. and. You know, you spoke a little bit about how, how you're feeling this morning, both as a parent and then as Secretary of Education. So I'd like to probe into the latter a little bit. So Sean and I both got an alert this morning that Liberty Middle School in Hanover has delayed their reopening after three faculty members tested positive. I'm sure these are things that you've anticipated, but as Secretary of Education, how how do you view your, yourself as an individual and then also your, your team and your workforce group responding to things like this or even the widespread tech issues logging on that Chesterfield is experiencing today as well? Right. Thank you, Megan. That's a great question. And we want to be there to help support uh, the, whether it's the local school divisions, whether it's universities. Um, I was on the phone call, uh, uh, multiple phone calls this Labor Day weekend with the president and James Madison because uh, they're going through some tough challenges. Um, one thing that we have to realize is whether it's a university president, whether it's a superintendent or a school administrator, there's a lot of pressure on them. Um, and uh, sometimes when they're dealing with, uh, with these issues with the pandemic um, and unexpectedly things happen, they have to adjust really fast. Their staff has to adjust really fast. Um, and they already take a lot of beating from families, from the media and so forth. So from our office perspective, we want to provide them uh, uh, support um, in any way we can, whatever state support systems we have in place and listen to their concerns and have to help them navigate through these tough times. This is a very tough situation uh, uh, for everyone. Uh, and the one thing I, I do a lot of town halls and I tell everyone, whether it's teachers, whether it's parents, whether it's students, is that this is very, very challenging. Uh, there are no perfect answers. Uh, folks in decision-making will make mistakes. This is a pandemic. There's a lot of unknowns. Um, yes, you want to hold them accountable. You want to ask questions, but you also want to be thoughtful in your approach because sometimes when there's too much um, uh, you know, pressure without, and too much misinformation, and decision makers often may, might make a bad decision. Um, so you want, want to make sure that we're using good communications with them 
but as my role again uh closing the loop on that we want to uh and we've tried our best and, and we're not doing the, the perfect job i mean i'm sure we're making mistakes but um whatever resources we have whether it's uh you know uh, our cares act dollars whether it's state dollars whether it's policy making to make things flexible give them waivers and stuff we're trying to provide a seamless pathway if schools are asking hey can we get waivers on this we want to respond right away uh, can we streamline the process of processing uh, funds quickly because we have a lot of needs with PPE, uh, with MiFi's and laptops, um, with school nutrition, uh, with hazard pay. So we're, we're trying to turn things around really, really fast. And, it, I, and I take that responsibility very seriously. Great question, Megan. Secretary Carney, that, that's that's very helpful. And, and you know, I think that's a very healthy perspective to take. And, and one, you know, I, I'm curious, and I kind of want to dive a little bit into, um, you know, how that perspe perspective has, has been built by your background. And, and um, you know, kind of starting, uh, if I piece together your timeline correctly, you immigrated with your with your folks uh, in the late 80s um, from Pakistan. And, and um, you know, I, I'm just really curious how, you um, how I, I know you've written about your experience as an immigrant, as a Muslim American running for office. Um, how has that lived experience kind of shaped your approach, not only to your role as Secretary of Education, but also to uh, the Commonwealth and into into America? It's, it's helped tremendously. Um, if you asked me 30 years ago that you know uh, I would be Secretary of Education of Virginia, I would say, "What is Secretary of Education?" <laughs> so it's uh, uh, but uh, you know our experiences shape our thinking. Um, throughout our, our, our life. So it definitely has shaped my thinking. Um, as a matter of fact, uh, it's funny you mentioned, uh, you know, coming here in the late 80s, I found a picture that I took, a school picture from my first year here in the United States in fifth grade, uh, as I was cleaning our attic and stuff, and it just uh, popped up. So I'm going to po post it on Facebook. <laughs> uh, but there, um, uh, just going through challenging experiences, uh, my uh, as my parents immigrated, I'm a first generation too. I was the oldest of the three brothers, the first one to graduate from college. Um, so it, it was very tough experiences, you know, uh, that my uh, uh, family went through. Uh, you know, myself and my brothers also had to work while go, uh, when we were in high school and so forth to help pay bills because, you know, my parents uh, were they're working class fam uh, family, right? So they didn't have you know, they're hourly employees, so they didn't have um, all the luxuries and stuff, so it's, it's tough. Uh, but having said that, it really builds uh, empathy uh, for everyone I keep in mind, um, all the experiences I've gone through, um, because now I'm in a situation, a very privileged situation. My wife has a similar background where we try to remember what we went through, um, and I try to remember what I went through to show empathy of all the children that are going through different experiences. Everybody has different experiences, regardless of their socioeconomic background. <clears throat> and then um, in uh, addition to that, the classroom experience, I taught um, at Bevel Middle, which is in Prince William. So the school itself, I taught eighth grade all 10 years, and it's located um, in, um, um, uh, in the part of Prince William that's economically disadvantaged, uh, majority of the students attending the school are economically disadvantaged. It's a very diverse school. It was predominantly uh, Black and Latinx. Uh, also, it had families who had immigrated from Africa, from, a from different Asian countries. Um, and so it was very interesting mix. So 
you know, learning about their experiences, having those conversations in class, um, and then learning about educator experiences, teacher experiences. It's uh, very tough being a teacher this day and age. There's a, uh, a, a, for the last several decades, two things have occurred. There's been an overemphasis in achievement testing and it's become very high stakes testing. And concurrently, there has been uh, you know, a de-escalation in funding and resources, and there um, are school boundaries and rezoning. Uh, we're more segregated now than we were in the early 1960s. Uh, you can look up all the research from all the uh, professors. I was actually reading one uh, from UCLA yesterday. So it's, uh, there's a lot of issues in our education system. So I try to keep my firsthand experiences in mind, look at the big picture, and that really helps drive policy making and thinking. And um, uh, uh, you know, coming into this position, uh, I came with that that in mind. But I did have to adjust because uh, one thing is that I realized is that um, I had to be um, very strategic and thoughtful and patient and laying a strong foundation to build buy-in to get policy implemented because. Uh, when you come into decision-making power, you know, uh, from this active so, uh, background, you're like, one change right away from day one. That's what I wanted. I'm like, look, uh, folks are like, okay, it's going to happen, but it's going to take a year plus to really uh, do educating, lay a strong foundation and be patient and you'll see changes. So I've been in this position for three years and now we're seeing a lot of good changes, but it took time. So um, uh, this, that's, uh, that, that'll, how it kind of went into it. So I hope, did I answer that question? Uh, no, that, that was, ve that was very helpful. And, and yeah. um, you know, and one other part of your personal experience that you didn't really touch on was your experience in the military. And if, if I, um, you know, if I, again, piecing together the timeline, it looks like you joined the military right out of high school um, and then uh, served for eight years from 96 to, to 2004. 9-11 um, happens obviously five years in. And I'm just curious, how, how did your military experience kind of, um, you know, shape you? And what, what was your experience like? And then how did, you know, what, what within that military experience kind of put you on this, this path that you're on right now? Yeah, um, ever since I was little, um, uh, I wanted to, even when I was in Pakistan before I immigrated over, I'm like, hey, uh, this, I was fascinated with military. I thought it was really cool. And I don't have anybody else in the military. We don't, we don't have a military family. But for something that's, uh, that always excited me, I'm like, hey, that's really cool uh, to be in the military, whether it's flying planes or doing whatever. It's really, it seemed really cool. So um, I had two friends who uh, were on my track, track and field team who, uh, were, uh, who had signed up for the Marines. And we were in boot camp together. So they had signed up and um, they um, encouraged me. And some of my friends signed up for the... Uh, army and so forth but marines obviously being the best <laughs> they they made a good pitch for it the recruiters made it made a good pitch uh of the reputations of uh, of the marines uh, so the one interesting thing i'll say is that uh coming from an immigrant background and i don't uh it was really interesting because the recruiters my mom would not she was really opposed to me signing up um so i had to get the recruiters come to her house have dinner with us and convince her. My dad was very excited. He's like, yes, make me, make me proud. And this is exactly what we want. Uh, you know, I can brag to my friends. Uh, but my mother was really opposed to it. She's, she's never liked military type stuff. Uh, 
So um, they had to come and, and the recruiters had to have a conversation on the benefits of being in the military. Now she's really happy about it. She's, uh, she, she brags about it, but it, it's, uh, then, then you, you asked the question about, well, you know, September 11th happened um, in two, uh, 2001, I signed up in 96. So that was um, being, being Muslim, um, seeing September 11th, uh, uh, seeing a lot of hate crimes go up and, and Islamophobia go up, uh, especially after September 11th. It was a really interesting experience. Uh, and I was deployed in 2003 to Iraq. Um, you know, one thing I really enjoyed about my military ex ex life is that regardless of your race and what your background is in the military, it's really, it's a very interesting place is that uh, it doesn't matter <laughs> what your background is, is there's just a meshing of different folks from different parts of the country. So some of my military buddies are, they have very different experiences, different backgrounds um, who I've served with. Um, so we had very interesting conversations about, you know, what it's like to be in Iraq, um, uh, and, and engage in, uh, in, uh, in this war. And uh, I talked about my experiences. So it was a very, uh, 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 you know, good, good experience. Now how that's impacted, um, uh, you know, education policy and thinking and so forth, that also has an impact because uh, in many ways, one thing I keep in mind is that we have a lot of military families in Virginia, for example, Virginia, um, California and Florida have the uh, highest number of veterans and military families uh, coming through. They move around a lot. Um, so kids have different experiences. I, I've experienced in my life moving around a lot. So that, you know, I keep that in mind is that when we're doing policy making, thinking about that. Um, and then just uh, keeping in mind is that having my own racial religious background and having served in the military is a very interesting dynamic. So uh, I keep that in mind is that how does that play out in a classroom with students for, of different backgrounds and they might be living in certain situations where they're having this interesting conversation. So, so that, that definitely has um, uh, some, some bearing in, in, in policymaking as well. I think I want to hit on that distinction that you, you noted that in the military, you felt like your background didn't play as large of a factor. Um, and I know that you had run a couple of times for the General Assembly and it seemed like your background did play such a large role in that. I know you wrote a little bit about the party kind of trying to talk you out of running because they didn't think, you know, Virginia voters were ready for you. And now here you are sitting in a Democratic governor's cabinet as Secretary of Education. So how has that experience been like um, for you and how have you navigated that political arena? Yeah, yeah, and um, so sometimes in politics, uh, decision makers overthink th things. Um, sometimes it's, it's, it's necessary. Sometimes it could be a little bit too much overthinking. Um, and I had very, you know, good conversations. So I had run for the uh, General Assembly in 2013. Uh, uh, at that time, there was no blue wave and it was still, in Prince William, it was still, uh, you know, very red. I did really well. Uh, did well actually outperform the top of the ticket. So that's the argument I made when I ran for Senate in 2015. All of a sudden there, a seat opened up. Um, and my wife uh, and my brother, who I really rely on their, uh, uh, their advice because they're very politically astute, both of them. Um, so they're like, you know, you have an opportunity here. You did really well. Um, and there was three of us who ran in the Senate seat, all three of us, you know, uh, uh, friends. 
who ran in 2013 uh, and, and had very, very close races. So unfortunately, uh, the, the seat, uh, the Republican challenger was very popular. So there was too much analysis that, oh my God, this person is running well-established name, been mayor for a very long time. We just can't take any risk. It's too risky. And even there was actually an African-American in that race as well. And he wasn't getting any attention. <laughs> At least I got an opportunity to sit down with our, the leadership and have these conversations. But they were really nervous about, um, we just don't know Prince William. There's a lot of unknowns and it's too big of a risk. The Senate is hangs in a balance. A lot of important votes hang in a balance. Um, so, you know, it was, uh, it was an upsetting experience. And that's why I wrote about it. Uh, folks were upset that I wrote about it, um, but the very same folks were really good friends now, and <laughs> they're the ones who actually encouraged uh, me to become in this position, and, and they've actually been really helpful in policy making and stuff, and, and people change. Their minds change, right? Their perspectives change. We're constantly evolving, or uh, even the Democratic Party has evolved significantly uh, since 2013, as, as you all are aware, um, because uh, folks want to continue to challenge the conventional wisdom, which uh, is not always the right thing to do. So um, I'm where I uh, am happy and satisfied is that that the thinking is changing. Does that some of that is still exist? Yeah, and we need to continue to challenge that narrative, and in both parties, and in and society as a whole, is to uh, just give everybody a fair shot. One thing I tell everyone, and one thing I keep in mind is, am I even I'm doing my own hiring. And so for this one thing, I know you all didn't ask about that, is that oftentimes uh, people might, who might have different names, different backgrounds, there's a lot of unknowns, and they just don't get an opportunity to interview or even have a chance to make their case. So um, all, uh, even coming into this position, all I asked was is that I just want a chance to interview. You know, I don't want any special favors. Let me put out my vision and my plan. If you like it, take it. If not, so that's all we're asking for is that opportunity. Um, and, and that's something I've kept in mind in my hiring practices too, is to give people of all different backgrounds, be, you know, show no biases as best as possible. And we all have our biases, but give everybody a fair shot to see, you know, who's bringing what to the table. I think the last thing we just wanted to touch on about your background is kind of that trajectory to becoming secretary of education. It's, it's not quite linear if, if you look at your path. So you got a degree in sociology from G GW and then a master's in history and then you go to teach and and you run for a little bit and and I know you mentioned you know you just wanted that opportunity to interview but how did that opportunity to interview happen right um so um in 2017 when the governor was running governor northam was running in the primary uh there um his current chief of staff uh reached out uh, to me, Prince William was a battleground state, and um, at that time, because I had run, uh, but in addition to running, um, I had uh, I was very um, active in education policy making um, and other so, uh, social justice issues around immigration, um, around uh, just school boundaries. I mean, you name it, a variety of issues, um, um, and uh, they're like, you know, we really. Um, have heard good things about you. You're doing a lot of organizing. Can you uh, do a roundtable with the governor? Um, so I did a couple of you know roundtables with the governor with different groups, um, whether it was Latinx groups, Muslim groups, because I'm very close to the immigrant communities, whether it's API community, 
I did a lot of round tables with uh, my teacher friends, a lot of our educators, because we were also getting organized and voting. And, and some of them have actually run for office and gotten elected because we were just, uh, you know, uh, getting better at organization. And when you get organized, that's why I tell students or other young people is that if you become organized, uh, folks will take notice and they'll come to you. You don't have to go to them. So, so they came and they're like, hey, look, uh, do a couple of town halls. So after the governor got elected, and he had said throughout the campaign multiple times that he would really like somebody right out of the classroom. Virginia had never had that where somebody, and it's rare, it doesn't happen anywhere in the country. It's really rare to have somebody right out of the classroom uh, to go into a position like this. So after he got elected, um, I talked to him a few days after uh, he called, to, you know, uh, they called to say thank you, and he called to say thank you for uh, volunteering on his campaign. Um, so I said, you know, Governor, uh, uh, thinking about, you know, applying for the Secretary of Education position or, or, or I'll, you know, even deputy and stuff, you know, I'm just going to throw my name in the, uh, the ring here. So he's like, yeah, you got to go for it and we'll give you a fair shot. The transition team will give you an interview. Uh, and that's all uh, it was. And I, I prepared for the interview. I'm going to be candid with you. <laughs> it wasn't just, uh, you know, uh, th that the governor just promised anybody anything. I'm not affluent. I'm not a don big donor. <laughs> you know, uh, teachers don't make a lot, as you know. So, um, and that's what I really respected about the transition team. And that's what I really respect about the governor. He, he's, he gives everybody a fair shot. And that's, uh, it just worked out. I mean, it, it's, you could call it luck or you can call it whatever being, at the right place at the right time, but um, he had a transition team of five, five people or so who were interviewing different candidates, and they made the recommendation, um, and that's how it worked out. So um, very fortunate for that opportunity. So now you're the Secretary of Education in the middle of a pandemic, yeah. right? <laughs> and <laughs> and it's um, you know I'm curious. Um, you get what you ask for, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's exa exactly right. Exactly right. And it's you know I, I think the point you made earlier, um, you know, when we first started about how hard this problem is, and, and you know I, I do believe that the um, I think the public has is shown um, a bit of grace. I think in with with um, government officials who have tackled this in good faith and are really trying. And, and I feel like um, there is a little bit of room and understanding that mistakes are going to be made. And so I, I, I'm kind of curious though, Secretary Carney, you know, as, as you, you talked about the role that, that you and your office play in providing the support and what is it really right now that kind of, you know, um, what is it that keeps you up at night at this point? You know, what, what aspect of that support is it that, that you kind of, you know, really are, um, dwell on and, and kind of, and kind of um, what keeps you up at night? Yeah, there's a lot of things that keep me up at night. Um, so there, with the COVID pandemic, uh, we announced our school closures on March 13th. Uh, literally the decision was made on Sunday, of, Sunday to make the announcement on Monday. So I was on a call with the governor and, and a few others thinking through that. It was a very tough decision um, because we knew that it's gonna have a lot of reactions. Some, uh, there's a lot of mixed feelings from folks on, on flu closures and, and, and with COVID and stuff, but it was the right decision because you know, we wanted to prioritize safety. Um, so through that process in the spring, there was a lot of challenges. So what keeps me up at night is that how are we providing those services for students with special needs who just have a tough time? A lot of students, everybody has a tough time 
learning through virtually. This is not the best environment for education. Uh, uh, learning has to happen in person with a lot of interactions. Um, virtual settings just do not work for many, many folks. Um, and many, uh, I've been to about 50 plus classrooms um, during the spring when virtual learning was going on and it was very challenging on teachers, very challenging on families and parents, uh, parents of young learners, parents with of stu special, uh, students with special needs, English language learners. Um, it, it, was, it was very difficult. Um, <clears throat> so that is, uh, still keeps me up at night because 85% of our students are right now virtual. Uh, which we, we have to be. I mean, I support uh, the, the decisions of the school boards because safety is a priority. Um, so just thinking through that, you know, what families are going through. Um, it's, uh, I have all the resources in the world. My children have all the resources in the world. It's tough on us. So I can't even imagine, you know, uh, folks who don't have the option to stay home, that they are working class families. They make hourly wages and having to worry about their children, making sure they're logging in. Do they have the resources? There's a working laptop. Uh, do they have the tech, tech support they need? Do they have a working webcam? There, so those kind of those things keep me up at night. Um, one other thing that really is on my mind is that about half a million students of the 1.2 million students in K-12 that we serve are on free and reduced lunch. Um, that's something we prioritize a lot in spring to make sure that uh, we had all the waivers from the from USDA and we had all the resources to serve those meals. Our um, Department of Education and our school nutrition workers were serving about a quarter million meals every day. Um, so that's something now that school has started, it keeps me, a lot of families rely on, uh, on those meals a lot. So uh, that keeps me up at night. Um, and uh, we're, our, our achievement gap, gaps are gonna be impacted. So I'm already thinking through strategies on how we're gonna address that. Um, we had a COVID-19 group that we brought together in Virginia that was made up of early childhood practitioners, uh, K-12 and higher ed, both public and private, and bringing everybody together, looking at holistic approaches, coming up with recommendations for the governor to consider. Um, the resources are uh, running out. I mean, it's, uh, we're bleeding money every day. Um, so I'm monitoring to see what the federal government does. And I know you've all heard this um, a lot, but it's, it's, it's really serious. Like they need to step up their game and send us the resources. We're running out of money. Uh, folks are really hurting and um, uh, we're get constant calls and emails every day that send us the resources. We want to send the resources where we just have run out. Um, so, um, uh, you know, not to end on a, on, on a, on a sad note, but it's a serious situation where I do remain optimistic is again, what I talked about earlier is that, you know, our, um, young people are very resilient. So that's something that keeps me going is that they're going to, uh, on their own, find a way to be resilient despite the challenges. Cause I've seen that I see that in them and they're, uh, you know, they're going to, they're the ones who are going to lead us through this. A lot of the the themes you touched on there, kind of regard, um, have to do with equity, and and I, especially the first topic you brought up. I actually have twin five year olds and a two year old, and um, we actually went through with one of my twins um, his IEP meeting on Friday, and he is actually nonverbal, um, has autism, and um, 
you know, just getting him since March to, to attend to a screen for five minutes, you know, was a, was a process and a challenge. And, you know, I, I just really wonder, um, you know, what, what role can the state play in trying to, um, you know, address that issue? Because it, it feels like in this environment, and again, you know, um, it's one where equity is, is something that we've failed to achieve in, in optimal circumstances. And so, you know, trying to, to find it now, you know, what, what role is, can the state play in trying to address that? Right, Sean. And you, you said it perfectly because we have a lot of inequities and it's taken us years to address them in uh, in-person settings. So how are we going to do that in virtual miraculously? It's just not practical. Um, so the, what the role that we have played and um, we need to continue to do a better job is making sure that all the resources that are available to school divisions. So in our guidelines, when they came out, even in the phase one, we emphasize our students with special needs, um, is making sure that they, school divisions prioritize in-person settings, uh, uh, you know, showing the fidelity for the social distancing and physical distancing uh, guidelines and making sure that that's being done in a safe manner. Um, and giving um, compensatory services is a term we use. It's basically um, extra money bonuses. I, I'm a military guy, so I use the term hazard pay. It's hard to deprogram. <laughs> folks get panicked like hazard pay, uh, you know, but we are in a pandemic. I mean, it is kind of like, you know, it's the people are putting their lives at risk. At risk. So uh, a lot of folks tell me not to use hazard pay as a term, but it's hard to program, but um, giving those resources extra. I, I feel that if teachers um, are going in person and they're taking the risk, I mean, we should incentivize them in some way. And, it, and it's not try to bribe and buy folks off. That's not the intent, but you know, they're really making a sacrifice. We did the same thing with school nutrition workers is um, school nutrition workers who were going in and other teachers and staff who were volunteering to distribute meals. We wanted to make sure they have the adequate PPE they had the they did the temperature screenings and health screenings, and on top of that, we gave them, uh, you know, extra pay. So that's very important for the state, and that's where, uh, you know, our resources are going to run out. I anticipate, um, uh, you know, about halfway through the school year, we've allocated those resources, but school divisions are telling us that about halfway through the school years, you know, they're they're going to run out. They're also trying to protect furloughs. I know you didn't ask about this, but uh, right now, we haven't furloughed anyone, whether it's bus drivers, custodians, school nutrition workers, uh, or, or teachers. Um, those monies are going to run out about halfway through the school year. Um, and that's what folks are really, really nervous about um, uh, as well. So uh, just kind of closing the loop on that is that's how the state is trying to play a role is to make sure that we continue to uh, uh, get the resources to the school divisions so they can use them appropriately and provide these services. Um, and then in our phase two guidelines, uh, extend it from students with special needs to also uh, preschool to third graders and English language learners. And then phase three, in-person um, uh, settings, keeping social distancing in mind for everyone. And it's, unfortunately, it hasn't worked like that because the, um, in on paper, it seems practical, but in implementations, schools are having a very tough time. It's just hard to implement, to follow social distancing with fidelity, to make sure everybody's uh, done health screenings every single day. That's part of our guidelines. So could you imagine students standing in line every day, every morning, 
everybody doing a health screening going in it, it's uh, to to execute it's a lot of work that's why you've seen a lot of divisions not go in person just yet because they're just not fully equipped to follow all these guidelines to a T. So that's why you're seeing a lot of folks um, go virtual and, and it, it, there's pros and cons to that. And I know that services are getting disrupted like students with special needs. Um, so we're trying to help everybody think through that and say, okay, well, what can we do more to do in-person settings while maintaining the safety and provide these services? So we're helping them I'm really pleased that our conversation about COVID is really centering equity because I think to not do so would be uh, a huge mistake and I think that speaks to a lot of how centered this is in your thinking as Secretary of Education. Um, and I know your mind is probably very focused on K through 12 and higher ed because those, you know, have recently reopened or are, are about to. But I know um, early childhood education has recently come under your agency from DSS and um, being a former pre-K teacher and working on the C partnership with um, Ed Policy Works under Jenna Conway, who's also on your COVID-19 um, workforce group. I'm really interested to hear about your perspective about how particularly center-based settings, um, the ECE workforce is predominantly women of color relative to the public school system that is predominantly white women. And, and how do we um, center equity in decisions around ECE, not necessarily reopenings, because a lot of them never closed, um, when we know there are such big disparities about how COVID is affecting these communities. Megan, that's a great point. Thanks for uh, raising that. And that's definitely on our mind and our decision making. We're trying to work through um, Virginia Education, uh, uh, you know, BECF, the Early Childhood Foundation, um with uh, with jenna's team um with the or with dss uh, the transition is occurring and it's occurring during covid um as well but i i'm with you i uh, it's uh, like you said um the early childhood practitioners are predominantly women of color um you know they're making hourly wages the average um wage for early childhood worker in in an early childhood in a childcare setting um is about $11 an hour in Virginia. So, you know, that's unacceptable. Uh, they don't have the adequate health benefits either. Um, so that's what we're thinking through is that how do we use our resources and funds um, uh, for virtually? How do we provide services virtually? And if it is in person, how do we take into account for same things I mentioned earlier with PPE, with uh, uh, hazard pain and so forth? And how do we protect furloughs? Um, childcare settings um, are, really <laughs> in really hurting and i get i understand that the business community is uh struggling and i understand that the child care settings are understanding but we have to lead with keeping our students and the folks who actually are on the front line serving our students we have to prioritize their needs first so that's what one thing um we keep in mind is that uh making sure that we're protecting them it's a very very tough situation there is a lot of pressure and I have some very had had very intense conversations from folks like, well, look, the economy's hurting, and we got to get childcare settings. If schools won't open up, let's get childcare settings going. Talk to school buildings. Let's let the YMCA's and others come in and stuff. And I'm like, I, I get, I get the pressure on the on uh, on business owners. I get it, uh, but we still have to be very thoughtful because safety is very important for everyone, uh, including those most vulnerable women, women of color. For serving in these settings 
Um, they just don't have an option. They don't have a choice. People talk about choice and options. Folks don't. If you're struggling and the, you know, the stimulus money is not coming down um, to protect your evictions, to uh, protect your um, other benefits, it's very, very tough. Another conversation that we have a lot, uh, I talked to our <clears throat> um, chief workforce advisor to the governor who oversees our employment commission to see what's happening in that space. Um, and, uh, and the Virginia Employment Commission of all the states and territories was ranked number three a couple of days ago for the services they're providing. So we're trying to make sure those systems are running smoothly as well because we have a lot of claims, thousands of claims coming in every day. So they're moving in. Uh, that uh, you know, uh, I keep an eye on to see, okay, anybody in the education space, um, what's happening there? Is anybody furloughing anyone? Um, whether it's early childhood space or the entire continuum of education, like what's happening to make sure that uh, we're monitoring that uh, very, very closely. But um, it's, the, it, it's tough, Megan. Uh, it, it's tough and um, it, we just have to be continue to be very, very thoughtful and, and not make any decisions that will have an adverse impact and make the situation even worse. Have, have you, you know, as, as we, Megan asked the question about, you know, the, the younger, the younger kids. And I, I'm curious your response, because it just feels like all of the public discourse and the public debate has centered around universities and, and older students, you know, going back in person when it feels like the need is truly on the, the, the younger, the younger end of, of students, you know, more towards the K rather than, than towards the 12. And, you know, I think there are probably some political reasons that people are trying to have that fight. Um, but, um, you know, it just feels like that um, on a national scale that the priorities about who we're, we're getting back in school just feel feels misplaced. And I'm, you know, as, as a parent of someone with with young kids, you know, I'm kind of pulling my hair out. I'm, I'm curious, you know, as you see this discourse and just the, the rhetoric around it um, and where the focus has been to getting kids back in school, has is, is that been frustrating for you? It, it has been. And I don't mean to be mean spirited, <laughs> but um, I feel like our Department of Education at the na national level and the administration just they don't know much about education and how things work about the entire continuum. Um, it's, uh, uh, there, there isn't a lot of thought put into thinking holistically and looking at the entire continuum. Um, we don't do many things in Virginia well, but one thing we do really, really well that I, I'm proud of is that we look at the big picture and we've done a really good job in connecting the dots in the entire education, pre-K or early childhood through 20 continuum. Um, and that's really needed at the national level. And it's not just this administration, right? Equity issues don't uh, go away with one administration to another or one person to another. I, I think collectively, um, <clears throat> even the next administration, I'm uh, hopeful that the, you know, they'll make uh, some uh, uh, thoughtful decisions on looking at the big picture and meeting the needs. Early childhood education needs to be talked about at a national level. Only a few states have really embraced it. We're lucky in Virginia that we had leadership un uh, under the Northams and our first lady who's been the face of this to really, they were very intentional about bringing in Jenna. And I mean, it's, uh, uh, it's not being talked about as much in Virginia. Uh, and um, we, we try to communicate that, but this legislation that was pa passed to move all these functions from Department of Social Services that Megan is talking about, consolidate them, create this Department of Early Learning at our Department of Education. That's a massive historic change because 
that only a full department like that exists for uh, uh, special education, right? Um, but there is a, now going to be a whole department of early learning, which is going to have such a, a great impact on, on generations to come. Imagine if that were to happen at the national level, uh, because when um, we got more structured and we still have a ways to go uh, to improve our special education services nationally, but there was a lot of strides made starting in the late 1970s and so forth. And it took decades to really get the infrastructure built and we're still building on it and improving those services. Imagine if that happened with early learning, um, that will have a significant impact. So um, you both are right. I think that uh, you know we're not talking about it at the national level and I don't wanna guess on what the reasons are, whether I know we have an election looming and I don't wanna get into that, I mean, whatever the thing is, but it's definitely need to, needs to occur. Um, one other thing that really needs to occur, if you wanna know my personal opinion, and there's a lot of research and data to back this up, is that the biggest problem in our K-12 system is school segregation. <clears throat> it just is. And um, it, what, and when Brown versus Board of Education, I know you didn't ask about this, but it's important for your listeners to know the history is that when Brown versus Board of Education was passed, where did massive resistance start? It started here with the bird machine in Virginia. The operations for school boundaries and uh, stuff, they used to be at the state level. Um, when massive resistance laws were defeated, uh, as a result, the General Assembly in the late 1950s uh, shifted school operations to the localities. And that's when we gradually saw schools become more and more segregated. So the achievement gap was the closest between whites and blacks in the early 1960s because busing, uh, which happened in the 70s, there was a lot of research, schools getting integrated, it was working. It was working. It's, it's healthy for students to go to uh, school with uh, other children of different backgrounds is really healthy for learning. Um, and it also uh, provides more efficiency of our resources as well. There's a lot of research to back that up. Um, having said that, gradually, uh, even though massive resistance seemed to have been defeated, it still exists today. We don't just don't call it that. And schools are more segregated now than they were um, in, in the 1950s. So it's, it's a significant problem. And that's another thing that we need to have a national conversation about, is that how do we address that? Um, and how do we really step up? And that will take care of a lot of in inequities. It might not address everything, but having mixed income schools, mixed income neighborhoods, that's where the solution is. It's right there in front of us. Um, we just haven't had the political will at any level to really take it head on. Well, and, and you've been a part of, you're leading the task force to, to kind of solve this issue within the governor school system in, in Virginia. And um, specifically with TJ up in Northern Virginia, Maggie Walker uh, here in Richmond, um, I'm actually a product of the governor school system down in Roanoke. Um, but, you know, is this something where you feel like, um, you know, these policies and the approach that ultimately the governor school system takes is, is that kind of, you know, hoping to lead the way and, and, and how, you know, you mentioned Brown versus Board and just the the truly ingrained history, you know, that we have. You know, how how do you how do you go about overcoming that? Yeah, it's a, it's a tough challenge. Uh, tough challenge. And as a matter of fact, I have a couple of town halls with students from governor schools this evening. Is one of them, um, and um, 
surprisingly students and alumni of the schools are asking for the change. It's the families <laughs> who are showing resistance and they're using the same um, rhetoric that was used during massive resistance. And they get really upset when I say, okay, well, look, this is what you're saying. This was what was said in the 1950s. I'm just, the, the evidence is right there. You, you make what of it. And um, it's, um, uh, uh, so with COVID, folks who say, well, it's a hoax, right? It's not real. With systemic racism, it's also, which is a d disease and we want to diagnose it. If you're in denial that it doesn't exist, then that's the problem, right? That's part of the problem. And that's what we're trying to really um, have a healthy dialogue about recognizing that we're all responsible um, and we're all in it together to think through it collectively. Now with governor schools, uh, PJ and Maggie Walker, why do you see uh, that there's such a stark difference in the demographics of the schools and the region they serve compared to other governor schools, but they're not perfect or other issues is that our gifted programs are fragmented. Uh, that's one big part of the problem. I've asked the State Board of Education in the next two months, they're gonna open up our gifted regulations to make sure that they're equitable and fix them, um, making sure that we're uh, strengthening our pipeline, diverting our resources accordingly. But going up the chain and looking at the these magnet schools where they were intended to be for gifted and talented education, um, there are students who go to the, the governor schools who are truly gifted. There are students who are academically superior. There's a big difference. Folks conflate the two. Um, there is a lot of weight given to achievement testing. So there's two types of testing, right? You've got achievement testing, you've got aptitude testing. So achievement testing is what a student has had exposure to, have, has learned a lot of knowledge. So they're going to do well on an achievement test. Um, aptitude tests show a future potential of a student. So even in our gifted programs, as I talk to gifted coordinators and gifted teachers and the directors are conflating the two, right? Um, so we have to separate the two. Aptitude tests are not being utilized um, uh, in consideration and, and we haven't developed good aptitude testing. But if you take testing out of the equation, uh, to really understand uh, a student, you have to look at the entire profile of a student. You have to look at their life experiences. What are their communication skills? What are their creative, creative, creative and critical thinking skills? And that you can get a better understanding by actually talking to the teachers who work with the students, third through eighth grade. That's where our gifted programs start. So I don't know why we don't get those recommendations from teachers and get the entire makeup of, of a student. Um, talking to the student directly about their experiences, having them write an essay, submit a video, interviewing them. And um, the reason standardized testing has been used um, even by our universities and our schools is because the logistical process is too hard, according to them, to really look at the thing holistically, cost money. Uh, but I mean, okay, well, that's, that's not fair. I mean, obviously the system is gonna get gamed by those who are well-resourced. So we wanna you know, decouple that and do this right. And I'm like, hey, the state is giving you a hefty amount. Let's use a certain percentage to look at a holistic, uh, take a holistic approach, look at the entire profile of a student. And that's how we address these inequities because there are a lot of black and Latinx uh, and economically disadvantaged students across these regions who are just, uh, you know, not getting a fair shot. Again, it's about that access, having a, an opportunity to prove yourself. You're not getting that shot. Um, 
So it will only make these schools better. We have a very antiquated way ranking agencies rank our schools. You know, I've reached out to them, talked to them, and they're trying to improve their systems and their methodology and their algorithms. Um, all of our elite universities, Harvard, Yale, Berkeley, they've moved on from you know, being heavy tested to test optional, looking at the entire profile. Their rankings have not been impacted. Um, other countries are taking a more holistic approach um, to their gifted programs, magnet schools. Their rankings are not being impacted. So it's, not, it's only gonna make um, TJ and Maggie Walker and our gifted programs in general better if we modernize um, our, the way we do our admissions and identify the, the students who should go there. Um, so that's the thing is, and the one last thing I'll, know, uh, I'll end on is that um, I'm, I'm gonna draw a, a sports analogy when um, uh, an athlete uses a performance enhancement drug that's illegal or is frowned upon, right? So with the standardized testing and achievement testing approach, if you're enhancing your performance by getting a lot of extra help, tutoring services and so forth, it changes uh, the dynamic, right? It gives you a complete unfair advantage. Not everybody has those opportunities. Um, and that coupled with the starting line is already different for folks from different economic backgrounds or different racial backgrounds. That really is hurting our uh, education system. And we really have to look at that deeply, look at evidence-based practices um, and models that are working well and, and change those models. So the change is coming to the governor schools. I mean, I hope uh, folks realize that. I, I just told the folks in a nice way, I'm like, please embrace it. the change is coming. You can be part of the change and help give good advice and, and have a say, or you can resist and be part of this, uh, um, massive resistance type thing, which, uh, you know, uh, you can roll the dice on that, but the change is going to happen because the change is going to happen is because students and alumni want the change. They're the ones driving the change. They're the ones who want it. And, and, and I, and, uh, there's, uh, uh, you know, that's why I remain optimistic because our young people want this change and they're not going to rest until the change occurs. They're not going to let me rest. They're not let anybody else rest. So. I, I think uh, that pushback from parents that you mentioned is such an important factor. Um, the end of the summer, and, and now I've been listening to the podcast, Nice White Parents. So I'm not sure if you've had a chance in your busy schedule to do that, but it really touches on, you know, the New York City system and in particular these, you know, charter schools or certain districts and, and they touch upon, you know, how the gifted programs there, you know, the, dis the school district in NYC is something like 70% students of color, but their gifted and talented program has under 10%. And how do you get that buy-in from white parents that even if, you know, maybe they're voting blue, they their argument is usually, well, they don't want to experiment on their own child in this, um, you know, experiment to diversify schools. And I agree, like resegregation of schools is one of the biggest issues that I'm interested in looking at as a policymaker and how do we um, mitigate and get that buy-in. And there's that certain amount of like, uh, the there's like a threshold of I think the the podcast said like 23 white families if there are 23 other white families at a school then parents are willing to buy in um so how do, how in your decision making about this like what kind of studies are you looking at and and are you looking at things like thresholds for buy-in um or is it really just removing that barrier of testing and achievement testing right thank you Megan uh, it's both right so one the policy change is going to occur um, I've told the localities, uh, 
you have a head start. We gave them a, uh, when we, when the governor and the general assembly put the change for governor schools in the budget language, um, uh, last year in the budget, uh, met with the directors and said, look, you have a head start, uh, to start developing your diversity goals, starting having, ha having these conversations with the community. We'll monitor that. Um, if you can do this on your own, great. If not, the state's coming and we're going to make the change. So that's one. And then asking about your buy-in question, it's not just white parents, right? If you look at it, it it's a nationally, it's happening, is it also with Asian American parents as well. Um, because at TJ, the population is 70% Asian. At Maggie Walker, it's only 25% Asian, but it's growing, right? It's growing. It's 63% white, 25% Asian, and then rest uh, other black and Hispanic. So it's not, um, so the, the AAPI parents, um, well, the, the, you know, your policies are anti-Asian. And, and the way we get the buy-in um, is that we have to be very clear. Let's disaggregate the data. No community is monolithic. White community is not monolithic. Asian community is not monolithic. What about the economically disadvantaged whites and APIs who are also not getting opportunities or getting shut out of the process? Because if you, there's an income stratification um, at, at these schools and it's the really well-resourced families who are benefiting. And why does it happen to be white and Asian? Because that's where there's a concentration of wealth occurring. There, and that's the big problem in our society is there's a concentration of wealth and there's a concentration of poverty. And that's where it goes back to my original thing is that if we had more mixed income settings, um, that's where um, uh, you know, we'll see a lot of our problems um, addressed. Um, so uh, it's not necessarily asking for buy-in, but just telling them, hey, this is what the data shows. Um, I know a lot of working class Asian families who are not benefiting and they've complained about the process because you know, they, they just don't have the resources to uh, provide the services for their child to gear up for a, a standardized achievement test, which shows a very limited scope um, as well. And um, so we'll, we'll face a lot of resistance. Folks will make it an issue. It's happening with Harvard, Yale, Berkeley. These conversations are occurring where folks are rallying. And, and I've noticed that it's shifted where the Asian parents have are being put at the forefront. They're like, oh, we're okay. Uh, we're diverse. We got Asians, right? We got our token Asians. <laughs> so it's, it's disingenuous, right? The, is this ingenuous and uh, the way it's happening? And that's why I'm like, look, I mean, uh, it's not. And one thing um, uh, is we, we have to embrace the fact that um, it, for African-Americans, uh, you know, I mean, I'm not black or white, right? I'm looking, I'm trying to look at this very objectively. Um, <laughs> we just have generation after generation after generation of built up systemic racism. It comes in all different forms. You all are well aware of this. Um, uh, and, and, and we have to embrace that, that, that there's a problem that exists and we have to be proactive. And all of us address it. Um, you know, it shouldn't just fall, fold on the shoulders of African-Americans to talk about systemic racism that they're facing. It's everybody's responsibility. Um, so when I have conversations with my Asian-American friends, um, is like, look, the very freedoms that you enjoy as immigrants or API families, they were done on the sacrifices of a lot of different um, social justice movements and civil rights uh, movements, uh, generation after generation that were led by African-Americans. Um, 
and it's easier for you to assimilate um, and your experience is very different. Um, so you have to truly understand, you know, what the problem is. It's race and economics compounded and there's an intersection of two. Um, and we have to ask our question, why is it that, that uh, you know, uh, African-Americans and uh, Hispanics and Latinx uh, Americans are, tend to be more economically disadvantaged? That doesn't mean that they're not affluent and well-resourced Black and Latinx families, even in Northern Virginia. But if you look at the Northern Virginia demographics, and I know I'm going on and on, but it's, it's good to know the data. So at Thomas Jefferson, for example, the only 2% of the students are on free and reduced lunch, economically disadvantaged. So economically disadvantaged students, according to our definition, is somebody's on free and reduced lunch or their family's on SNAP or TANF and so forth, right? So the region they serve, about 30% of the students are economically disadvantaged. So we disaggregated the data by race. So the ratio for whites is 90-10. So 10% of whites are economically disadvantaged. For AAPI community, it's 80-20. For Blacks, it's 50-50. For Hispanics, it's 35-65. So we have to ask a question, in Northern Virginia, in Fairfax County, that is so well-resourced, why is it that 65% of Latinx and 50% of Blacks are economically disadvantaged? It, it just doesn't make any sense. Something's not right, you know? So this goes beyond just education. There's issues with affordable housing, and wages, and so forth. And, and this is one of the bluest areas, right? <laughs> so this is when people get really upset. I'm like, look, I mean, talk is cheap. You can put stuff on Facebook and put BLM stuff and, it, you know, try to show your friends that, hey, we care. But what is happening in the policies? Um, so I, I'll stop there. I'm, I'll digress. I know I'm <laughs> going on and on. I apologize. Yeah. No, I, th I think that's so, so important to re reinforce your point and, and this changing language within the ed policy space that it's not necessarily an achievement gap, but it's an opportunity gap that is informed by systemic racism and that they're equally uh, able to achieve as long as they have these resources and opportunities. Well, Secretary Carney, I, I think that's actually a very good good place to leave it. And so I want to ask you the last question we ask all of our guests, which is, what's the leadership lesson you've learned that you wish someone would have shared with you earlier as an undergraduate or graduate student? Yeah, um, I think, uh, and I try to work at it every um, day. Uh, there's going to be a lot of dissenting opinion. Uh, people are going to disagree. But um, one important trait of leadership is to really listen. Um, listen to all perspectives patiently and even if you disagree. Um, and that's something that I really, um, you know, um, value about uh, my boss uh, is that he's just really good at listening. He'll take a lot of beating from folks, but <laughs> he won't retaliate. And, and, and that's something that I really am trying to work in. This my advice would be is um, please just listen to folks. Uh, there's a tendency to get into these Twitter wars and, and all that stuff and, and just not listen. And I think if as a society, if we did a better job in just listening and trying to understand the perspective of other folks, I think we'll just do better. So uh, thank you for having me on today, both of you. This is great. Thank you so much to Secretary Carney for taking the time to be here. We will be back next week with another episode. Stay safe.